Yesterday morning, we started part four of our Tis This Season Christmas series. We were looking at and began to examine the supporting cast of Christmas. We started by zeroing in on the shepherds. Now, I'm not going to recap for the sake of time, but you can go to the website, calvary316.net. You can watch uh, the service from yesterday to get yourself caught up. Tonight, and continuing the train of thought of looking at the supporting cast, we're going to look at two, really three other groups of people that are really interesting and I don't think are talked about enough when it comes to Christmas. We're going to look at the wise men, and then we're going to look at Herod and the scribes. And so, if you join me, Matthew chapter 2, let's start by looking at the wise men, beginning with verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, that behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod heard this, he was troubled. And when Herod was troubled, everyone was troubled. And so he gathers together the chief priests, the scribes, and he asks them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, he determined what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, but he gave them these instructions. Go, search carefully for the young child. But when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east, it went before them till it came and it stood over the where, till it stood over the where, where the young child was. And when they had seen the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother. They fell down, they worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream, they should not return to Herod. They departed from their own country another way. Now let's start, as we kind of always do, with a scene of activity. I think it's great when you're diving into a section of Scripture, especially a section of Scripture that you find yourself very familiar with. And with the Christmas story, we often just naturally find ourselves very familiar to the point that we sometimes lose sight of some of the particulars and some of the context that help us unpack the text. So we'll begin with our scene of activity. Matthew tells us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, he's setting the context, that wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now we should point out that most scholars speculate that the arrival of these wise guys occurred not at the stable on the night of Jesus' birth, but rather somewhere between six to eight months following the traditional, the traditional manger scene. In many ways, when we see the nativity, we're driving down the street, we look over and there's the shepherds and there's the wise men and some farm animals and Mary and plastic baby Jesus there in the stable. That, that is completely biblically inaccurate, actually. The wise men and the shepherds were not at the scene together. Six to eight months after the fact is when scripturally what Matthew's telling us, the wise men arrive contradicting most of our tradition. There are three reasons why we know this to be certain. First, 
Matthew describes the scene surrounding the wise men's arrival there in Bethlehem much differently for the wise men than Luke did for the shepherds. We're told that when they had come, check it out, into the house. Matthew is clear that Mary and Joseph are residing in a house and they're not in a stable. It would seem that following the manger scene, that Joseph found it prudent, at least maybe a good thing, to spend some time rooting down in Bethlehem. As opposed to rushing back to Nazareth, they opened up shop. They rooted down. They were going to stay for an extended period of time in Bethlehem. And you can understand Joseph's reasoning, especially after the controversy swirling around Mary's pregnancy and the betrothal and then their marriage. You can gather why Joseph wouldn't be excited to get back to Nazareth. So they take some time. They root down. They have a house. They didn't stay in the stable forever. The second thing that validates this point is that Matthew tells us that when the wise men do arrive, they saw the young child. Now, this is much different than Luke's description of a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. The third reason, and this is more circumstantial, is that after realizing later into the story that he had been duped by the wise men, King Herod will order all of the baby boys two years and under in Bethlehem to be murdered. Now, in light of the timetable that had been established by the scholars of his day, Herod cannot pinpoint the age of Jesus, so he just has everyone executed two years and under, thus adding more proof to the reality that Jesus was not an infant baby by the time the wise men came. Now, before we try to connect the dots to uncover the identity of the mysterious wise men, and really, have you ever just taken a moment and kind of tried to step back away from the Christmas story? Because when you do, okay, you can kind of rationalize why the shepherds would be there, and there's Mary and Joseph, but the whole wise men concept... Like, we are once again very familiar with the fact that there were wise men. We see the plays. It happened. But this is really weird. I don't know if you've ever tried to wrap your brain around the wise men or who they are or why they came or what precipitated their arrival. To me, there's a lot of questions that demand our consideration about the wise men. But before we get to the, the theories, let's start with what we know from the text first. Matthew tells us they were wise men. Now, it's not just necessarily stating the obvious. We actually get a little information from this. As wise men, we're given the Greek word magos, which can be translated magi. That's where we get the idea of the magi. The name, it's an oriental term, and it was given to describe those who were teachers, priests, physicians, astrologers, seers, soothsayers, even sorcerers, they often were politicians. In Genesis chapter 41 and in Exodus chapter 7, the phrase magi was first introduced to describe some of the advisors of Pharaoh there in Egypt. In Esther, we see that the same term is later used to describe the advisors of the Persian king Xerxes, and then in Daniel, the wise men were part of Nebuchadnezzar's inner circle there in Babylon. 
We also know, the second thing, is that they were from the east. Now, though there is a lot of territory east of Judea, if you look at a map, there's a lot of things that fit within the east when looking at what lies to the east of Judea. Historically, biblically, references to the wise men east of Jerusalem would place these men as being somewhat connected to either the Persian or Babylonian Empire. As mentioned in Genesis and Exodus, they were also mentioned in reference to Egypt, but Egypt south. And so they're wise men, they're east. So with that in mind, we can understand they have some kind of important role, and they're also from the remnants of the Persian and Babylonian empires. Basically, they traveled from present-day Iraq or Iran, making their journey over a thousand miles through desert terrain to get to young Jesus. We're also told that they came to Jerusalem. Now, though these travelers knew what they were looking for, they were looking for a babe, the king of the Jews, and they had obviously a general geographical location in mind, it seems that the particular location these guys didn't have it nailed down. They're following this star. They get to Judea. The star disappears. They don't know where to go. And so they're left to go to the capital of the area, that being Jerusalem. And it's not abnormal for them to go to, well, maybe the king of the region, that being Herod, seeking, well, where the king of the Jews happened to be, which also we should note, fourthly, that they were searching for the king of the Jews. This is overlooked, but I think it's relevant. Because if they were Jewish, the vernacular would just be that they were looking for their king. But they were looking for the king of the Jews, which in the original language indicates that they're not Jewish. They're Gentile. As a matter of fact, they're pagans. And yet, though pagan they had been left with some kind of heritage to make the birth of a Jewish king relevant. So they come to Jerusalem. They're looking for the king of the Jews. Matthew also tells us what prompted their journey. We're told that they had seen his star in the east and had come to worship. Now we'll get to the star in a few minutes because that's another bizarre aspect of our story we often overlook. But it should be pointed out that though customary for another king to send a delegation of representatives to pay homage and respect when the son of a foreign king happened to be born, their intentions are more than just honoring or paying homage. The word that Matthew uses here for worship indicates that they were coming with the intention of falling prostrate from their knees to their face as an expression of reverence. We should also point out that they made good on their promise. Matthew later tells us that when they had come into the house, they see the young child with Mary, his mother, and what do they do? They fall down and they worship him. Same word. The sixth thing we can note about the wise men is that Matthew tells us that upon finding Jesus, in addition to worship, they presented gifts to him. Gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, because it was common in Eastern culture that you would never appear before royalty, without some kind of a gift. It's obvious that they saw the young child 
as literally the king of the Jews. They saw this young child in such a humble setting, in a house, not a palace, with Mary and Joseph, who are not a queen or a king, but they saw this young child as being royalty. With the humble setting, it really is amazing. Now, we should also point out that though, we're, that though nowhere in our text we're directly told that there were three wise men, which we often, right, that's another one of those things, that there were, how many wise men were there? And someone will say three, and then you'll be smarty, goody two-shoes. You're like, well, no, the Bible never actually says. Though it doesn't say. I, I, will, I will share with one scholar. He observes that the idea that there were three wise men comes from the fact that there were three gifts presented, which if you were coming and you were required to bring a gift, more than likely there were really only three. This scholar also says that we may say that the gold speaks of royalty, the incense of divinity, and the myrrh speaks of death. These three gifts were significant. So quickly recapping. They're wise men. They're from the east remnants of a Babylonian or Persian empire. They came to Jerusalem. They had a geographical location in mind, but they didn't have it pinpointed. They're in search of a newborn king, a Jewish king, which means that they're Gentile, that they're pagan, but they have some kind of heritage. Their intention, it's twofold. It's to worship, and it's also to present very unique gifts. Now, aside from the obvious, from what our text indicates, when I read this story, there are three overarching questions that puzzle me, that I'm kind of left scratching my head. And when I read scripture, I, I don't like just reading it blindly. I, I love to read scripture and to try to think of it from a different angle, to try to think of it from some aspects that aren't often considered. I hate taking preconceived notions at face value without digging below the surface. And there are three things that always have wondered about the wise men. First, how did they receive their understanding that the king of the Jews had been born? Which also leads us to a second thought is, how does a star indicate the timing of Jesus's birth? I mean, how did they come to the understanding that when they saw this particular star in the east, that it told them that a king of the Jews had been born and that they needed to travel bringing these three gifts and worship? Like where, like, where did it begin? Where did it come from? Like, why do they come? Why do they even care? That's kind of my third thought. Like, even if they knew that when the stars align, a king of the Jews is born, why give a rip? especially if you're not Jewish. Who cares? Obviously, they cared because they traveled a thousand miles through desert terrain, presenting these gifts in worship. Now, I want to present a theory that I believe answers both questions, all of the questions, and it adds an interesting dynamic to the wise men that we should consider tonight. Though many Old Testament prophets focus their prophecies on the ministry and purpose of a coming Jewish king, or what they called Messiah, none of the prophets were as Christ or Messiah-centric as that of Daniel. As a Hebrew captive of the Babylonian Empire, and it should be mentioned, a deeply spiritual man, Daniel was concerned that the Jews, his people, 
had vacated their privilege as the people of God as a direct consequence, a byproduct of their sin, their rebellion, their overall stubbornness concerning the purposes of God. If you're not familiar with the book of Daniel or this time period of Israel's history, they were in captivity because of their stubbornness, rebellion, and sin. And so Daniel's trying to figure out, is this it? Is it over? Is God done with us? Now to calm his fear, and because he's such a noble spiritual man, God allowed Daniel to peer into the future in a way that very few people ever had been given the opportunity with the purpose, the point of seeing that God not only had a plan for the people of Israel, but that the promised king would arrive, would come into Israel exactly 483 years from the decree for the Jews to return and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, for reference, and you can study this on your own, we're speaking of Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel chapter 9, we have what's commonly referred to as the 70 weeks prophecy, which is one of the most fascinating of Scripture. Now, follow me. We're going someplace with this. When you consider that Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey on the traditional historical date of April 6, 32 A.D., which happened to be, by the way, exactly 483 years or 173,880 days from King Xerxes' decree, the Persian king's decree, that the Jews be allowed to return to their homeland to rebuild Jerusalem on March 14, 445 B.C. Daniel, in his 70 weeks prophecy, this is what he does. He tells you the exact day of Palm Sunday. He said that... 483 years from the decree of the Persian king, which didn't exist yet, of his decree that the Jews could go back and rebuild Jerusalem, which at the moment was in ruins, 483 years from that day, the Messiah will present himself to Jerusalem, which is interesting because when Jesus is on the donkey, if you recall, and they're crying out the people, Hosanna, Hosanna, what? The king? that the Pharisees try to mute Jesus. They try to get Jesus to tell the people to shut up, to be quiet, to keep this on the DL. And what does Jesus say? He says something very interesting. He said, if I were to tell them to be quiet, guess what would happen? The rocks of the city would cry out because, and this is what he says, this is my day. What day? The very day that Daniel foretold almost 500 years earlier. Now, this is where we're going. Though Daniel had not only received incredible prophetic insight concerning the future of the coming Messiah, but he had also he had also become a very valuable commodity in the empire. To both Babylonian kings as well as Persian kings, Daniel worked his way up into positions of power and authority. Now, Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, we're given a very small detail as Daniel's working his way up the corporate ladder, a detail that really you wouldn't have cared about or even thought significant, aside from the fact that 500 years later, wise men from the east come from the ruins of the Babylonian empire, bringing gifts to the king of the Jews. We're told in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, I'll just read it for you. Then King Nebuchadnezzar promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon 
and made him chief administrator over all of the wise men of Babylon. The Magi, the exact same word. Now, since we already know the wise men from the east of undoubted Babylonian Persian descent, and since we know Daniel had pinpointed with precision accuracy when the king of the Jews would be presented to Israel, it doesn't seem, at least to my estimation, far-fetched to assume that Daniel had established as chief of the wise men an order of magi with the express instructions to present certain gifts upon the birth of the king of the Jews. It's a theory. But let me explain why I think this well, it illuminates some aspects of the wise men that would be shrouded in mystery otherwise. First, now this explains why the star ended up playing such a critical role. One of the areas of expertise concerning the order of wise men or the magi was astrology, the navigating of stars. As an expert in the movement of stars, it's my opinion that Daniel was able to designate the pattern of a singular star that would position itself over Israel close to the Messiah's birth. In many ways, the star's movement would be a countdown for the Magi over the next several centuries. And we already know that, that stars were chief. How in the ancient world? Well, if you know anything about uh, ships and navigation... Stars were the, the most significant way that you navigated, that you got yourself from point A to point B. Interesting that the Magi used a star to direct themselves to Jesus. I believe it seems likely that Daniel left behind instructions to follow a particular star 450 years following the coming decree. Don't forget the wise men. What do they say? They say to Herod that we have seen what? Not just a star, but they had seen his star in the east. This also explains why the wise men are tardy, like why they're late. Though Daniel knew with complete accuracy when Jesus would present himself to Israel as, his, as their king, he never knew when Jesus' birth would actually be or how old he was when he presented himself to Israel. Daniel is left to speculate. He takes 30 or so years, which would be a good time to coronate a king. He subtracts it from 483 years. He sets himself up with a reasonable timeline. He pinpoints the birth of Jesus based upon this between about a two-year window. It also explains why Gentiles were interested in a Jewish king to begin with. Though we could center a study completely on the ministry and the impact Daniel had on his culture. It should be mentioned that Daniel left behind quite a spiritual footprint. Even to the point that Nebuchadnezzar, many scholars believe, will meet in heaven. That because of Daniel's influence and example, because of his witness, that Nebuchadnezzar at the end of his life converted to the God of Israel. No doubt, his legacy left a heritage within the Magi. It also explains why they brought unique gifts. The gifts that the wise men presented gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They were significant, and they had a purpose, but truthfully, without any context, these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, 
would have been totally, completely bizarre. Now, gold makes sense. You're coming, there's a newborn king, it's royalty. Everybody can go with gold. Frankincense is strange, though, because frankincense was almost exclusively used by the priesthood in the worship of God, the Jewish priesthood in the worship of God. Even if you had simply come to pay homage to a newborn king with gold, frankincense, well, it communicated that you viewed this baby not just as a king, but also as divine. And then giving a baby myrrh? Now that would have been peculiar. Can you imagine going to visit a newborn baby, baby boy bringing a vat of embalming fluid? I mean, how twisted would that be? Hey, we're here to celebrate your son's birth. One day he's going to need this. That's what myrrh was, by the way. Myrrh was embalming fluid in the first century. They brought embalming fluid there to Jesus. Without some context, this is bizarre. Now, if left to themselves, these wise men, would they have brought these gifts? I don't think so. Daniel, what did he know? Well, he knew the Messiah would not only be king, he also knew the king would be divine, gold and frankincense. But also according to Daniel's 70th week prophecy, Daniel also knew that the divine king would die for the sins of his people, that of myrrh. Now, though this is an interesting theory, I would reckon you come to a Christmas Eve service and you listen to the first part of this Bible study, and you're thinking, this is, this is actually pretty strange. Like, I've never heard a Christmas Eve service that dealt with this. And I can understand that. I can actually somewhat agree with that. Even in my own notes, as I'm, as I'm hammering this out, I'm thinking, this is the most bizarre direction to take a Christmas Eve service. But Lord, we'll go with it. And, and the reason we're going to go with it is because with this context and this background of the wise men established, I think there's a really important lesson for you and I this evening, especially here Christmas Eve. Understand that these wise men had been given limited revelation, potentially by a prophet that lived 500 years before them. They had been given vague instructions that when this king would be born, a star would appear and that they should follow the star. They were given general explanation about why this Jewish king's birth was significant. But there's so many question marks to their act of faith. But what do we see? We see that though their knowledge was limited, a star in the east, that's our cue, and then they go. What do we see? We see that their rudimentary understanding of God and God's plan to include them and the story of his son's life Though very simple, they acted upon it. A star aligns in a special way, and what do they do? Without really knowing where they're going, without really knowing exactly what to expect upon their arrival, they travel a thousand plus miles to worship the Savior of all humanity. If faith can be defined as the spiritual muscle that enables a person to act upon what they know, you have to recognize the wise men's incredible faith. Their little knowledge produced a big act of obedience. Now, before we delve into that idea a little deeper, let's contrast the wise men by some of the other 
supporting cast of this first Christmas, that mainly of Herod and the scribes. We already read through the text, but I want to point out a detail within the text that's often overlooked. If you're reading through it, and you're trying to process what's really happening, aside from the fact you might have memorized it or read it a thousand times, if you really begin to process what's happening, what's taking place, Matthew indicates that after traveling a thousand miles from the east to Jerusalem, following a star as their navigation method, they get to Jerusalem and the star disappears. Now, after losing their only source of navigation, they're left with the only logical thing. They go to King Herod, and they ask where the king of the Jews has been born. Herod has no idea what they're talking about. These dignitaries show up on Herod's doorstep. They're like, listen, we were following the star. We get to Jerusalem. Boom. Google Maps goes down. We're not sure where we are or where we're supposed to go from here, but we are looking for the king of the Jews, and so we figure we can come to you, and you can point us in the right direction. For all they know, it's Herod's son. Seems reasonable, logical. Herod has no idea what they're talking about. He's really kind of caught off guard, I think, from the text. So he has them chill in the waiting room. He goes back, opens up his study, and there's all the scribes with their glasses and long white hair, and he's like, listen, guys, um, I got some wise men out here from the east. They're wanting to know where the king of the Jews is. Last time I checked, I didn't have a son recently. And so can you figure out what in the world they're talking about? Well, they have a powwow. They gather together and they tell Herod, they return. And they said that in Bethlehem of Judea, as it is written by the prophet Micah, in Bethlehem, there will be a ruler, not the least among the rulers of Judea, but a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, what does Herod do? It's like, all right, sounds great, guys. Goes back, calls the wise men in, shares the information. He requests that they bring back what they discover. By the way, completely disingenuous. He had no interest in worshiping the baby king more interest in killing the baby king. But then he sends them on to Bethlehem. Scribes stay in their back closet. Herod stays put in Jerusalem. When Herod, when they heard the king, Matthew continues, the wise men depart. But then, but then look, notice. The star which they had seen in the east, what happens? It, went, it goes before them. The star brings them to Jerusalem, disappears. They go to Herod. As soon as they leave Herod, what happens? The star, boom, right back on the radar. And it came and it took them right to where the young child was. And when they saw this star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Now note the progression. The star leads them to Jerusalem, the wrong location. The wise men turn to Herod for advice. Herod, the religious leaders, no idea what he's talking about. They, cons they consult with scripture. They determine the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem and they pass along this information. As soon as the wise men leave Herod, what happens? The star magically reappears, leading them not just to Bethlehem, but the specific house Jesus was born in. I think it's safe to say 
the wise men's 4G access to their star hadn't entered a dead zone. I think it's safe to say they just hadn't lost the signal. So why lead them to the wrong location? Have you ever considered that? Why would the star lead them to the wrong place? Only to have them encounter Herod, the scribes, and then as soon as they leave, it, it's right back. Why? Why? Now, up until this point, I think the only plausible explanation you can conclude is that this was intentional. That God used this star to lead the wise men to Jerusalem first before then leading them to Bethlehem. The news of Jesus' birth. As we've already seen, it's been heralded to the chief sinners of society. As we discussed yesterday morning, the shepherds, these sinners, these carnies, they responded to the news by immediately coming and worshiping Jesus. The news of Jesus' birth had reached a group of pagan, Gentile wise men, prompting them to do what? Travel a great distance with such limited knowledge to also worship the King of Kings. And God's sovereignty, we can conclude, he intentionally led the wise men to Jerusalem for this reason. The wise men's inquiry should have raised a few eyebrows within the so-called religious community. If the king of the Jews had indeed been born, then Herod and the scribes, they should have gone and worshipped the king as well. It's sad. It really is. That when you examine all of this in context, of all of the supporting cast members, aside from Mary and Joseph, of all of them, the group that should have been at the manger first, right from the beginning, it should have been the religious leaders of the day. They were experts in the scripture. They were benefactors of complete revelation. They knew Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. They should have been on the lookout. These scribes had zero reason to be ignorant. I mean, let's say hypothetically, they missed it. They had been searching, they had been on the lookout, they had been paying attention, but they just literally overlooked an important detail. They'd slacked off on the job. And in an act of grace, God sent the wise men to shake them out of their slumber. At this point, they were without excuse. And this is what's sad. Even after telling the wise men that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem, do we ever see them coming to Bethlehem to worship the Christ child? Tragically, no. Once again, you can't help but think, why? Please understand, the greatest danger limiting the work that Jesus can accomplish in your life, it's not sin. Don't forget, there were no bigger sinners in the first century than the shepherds. And yet, given the opportunity to embrace the Savior, they responded and they came and they worshiped. Jesus came to save the sinner. Also note that the greatest danger limiting the work that Jesus can accomplish in your life isn't limited knowledge or understanding. The wise men didn't have the benefits of God's word. They didn't have the revelation of scripture. Unlike the shepherds, they didn't even have like the benefit of an angelic host lighting up the night sky saying, go to the stable, morons. They didn't have any of that. 
all these wise men had is a legend passed down through the centuries, a star in the western sky, but they responded. And they traveled a great distance, and they came to the young child, and they worshiped. You see, in examining the supporting cast of Christmas, we learn that the greatest danger limiting the work of Jesus, the work that Jesus can accomplish in your life, well, it's not sin, and it's not limited revelation, it's religion. I am convinced these religious scribes didn't come worship the Savior of all humanity because they were convinced they didn't need saving. The shepherds, they were ready. The wise men were ready. But these religious leaders, the only reason I can come up with is that they just didn't sense an urgency. They didn't recognize a need. In our Southern Bible Belt Christian culture, I think the contrast we see between the wise men and these religious leaders, it presents a sobering reality for us. What you know is not nearly as important as what you do with what you know. I'm going to repeat that. What you know is not nearly as important as what you do with what you know. Or as one Russian playwright eloquently stated, knowledge is of no value unless you put it to practice. As we see with the scribes, it's not about what you know about God. It's not even about what you do for God. The key to Jesus' involvement in your life. It's responding to an invitation to come, encounter, and know God. It's not what you know. It's not what you do. It's who you know. This evening, Christmas Eve no less, God is speaking through maybe the darkness of your life. He's speaking through the void. He's speaking to your heart. And he's inviting you to come and to include yourself in the story of his son, Jesus. You know, religion, as with these scribes, religion, religion is so dangerous Matter of fact, the most dangerous thing that exists because religion lulls a person into a false security. It lulls a person into a sense of self-righteousness. I can point to what I know and what I do and I can say, I'm righteous, I'm a good person. If I don't first recognize my need for a savior, I can never be saved. The shepherds recognized this. The wise men recognized this. They came and they worshiped. But the scribes, and I can see them in their lofty religious perch, seeing that they were the best that society had to offer. They had their Bible verses memorized. They had their doctrinal T's and I's crossed and dotted. They knew it. But they never came. They never came. 
not only would they miss the incarnation, they'd also miss the resurrection. They would contribute to the crucifixion. They would never accept Jesus. Will you respond to the call? Sin is not limiting what Jesus wants to do in your life. As we mentioned last Sunday, God does not care what you've done or what you're doing. He cares about who he can make you. Once you've encountered his son, God's foresight is always future. That Jesus is willing to forgive and to cleanse if we would just be willing to come and to surrender and to accept the greatest gift ever given. Last Christmas Eve was a unique, special day in my life. Last Christmas Eve, this time last year, we were in a hospital room. At 6.06 p.m., Quincy Lyle Adams was born, and it was a monumental moment. It was, it was an amazing moment. Christmas morning, I got to wake. I say wake like I really slept. It wasn't that he was crying or anything, but I mean, you're just in the moment, and it's like every little breath or peep or prolonged silence. I mean, you're up checking to make sure that little kid's not broke. That morning, I'm able to read the Christmas story with my son, which is what we'll do for the second time in the morning. But about mid-morning, midday, the doctors, the nurses came in, and they told us that they wanted to take Quincy into the NICU unit for observation. Nothing to be alarmed with. They said that this was all just precautionary. And it would be for the next four days. But in that moment, I was upset. How dare you take my son? Now, now, please note that these are trained physicians and nurses. These are professionals. They're taking my son to the NICU unit, which has the best technology ever made in the history of the planet for purposes like this. And there I am resisting this with every fiber of my being, thinking, how dare you take my son, doubting the doctors, doubting the nurses, thinking that my pea brain has better medical understanding than they do. Me equipped with Google thinks I can diagnose much better than they can. It was really that silly, seriously. But there in that moment, they take my son. I had to let go. That or get arrested, one or the two. And I figured, uh, not going to get arrested. They take my son. And it was that moment I sat down. And I thought, my goodness. That God sent his only begotten son. That God would take his son and entrust his son, his only begotten. I can't let go of my son to train physicians in a completely sterile environment. Yet alone God sent his son to a teenage mom and a first-time dad, stepdad, and a gross stable with the, the first visitor's to the nursery being shepherds, like that God would do that. And I'm sitting there thinking, why? Why would you do that, God? And it was one of those moments that God spoke through that void 
spoke into my heart and said, I did that for you because I love you, because I care about you, because I want to minister to you, because I want to include you as part of my family as well. Why did Jesus come? He came to make access for you to a God that loves you and a God that cares. And the thing that limits, it's not sin. It's not limited knowledge. Ultimately, it's pride. Tomorrow morning when you're opening gifts, may you take a moment and may you consider the greatest gift that was ever given But then ask yourself a question. What am I doing with that gift? With that life? With this new hope and this new future? With this new identity? Will you respond to the call? And will you include yourself in the story of Jesus? I hope you will. So Father, we thank you for your word and for what it says to us this evening. 